Today's read, Midnight, a Gangsta Love Story by Sister Soldier, Chapter 22, A Sweeter Love. My schedule now was tighter than it had ever been before. I realized that being happy about the $10,000 wedding commission Uma and I had headed our way was only one level. The next level was the doubling, tripling, and quadrupling of our workload, Uma's and mine. I spent my days doing several more deliveries than ever before. I was traveling to new, faraway routes like Mount Vernon and even New Rochelle. I encountered new businesses and new business people. Orders had to be placed, tents rented, painters hired. I even ended up at a midtown Manhattan music store renting band equipment from a request the wedding party made. I had to go deep into Brooklyn to locate the tambour and deluca drums that are specific to the Sudan. Even our Sunday family days were being consumed with all of us working side by side for that money. Naja was a polite part-time receptionist on the Uma Designs phone. She also was becoming skilled at mixing oils exactly how Uma taught her and preparing the elixirs for the crystal bottles. Squeezing in dojo practice, weapons training, basketball practice, and keeping up with homeschool work, it was looking real tight on me spending time with Akimi. But I was thinking about her five or six times every day. Determined, I doubled up my efforts on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Even on Wednesday, the day me and her were going to get together, my feet were moving fast on the pavement early that morning so that by the time I met up with her, I wouldn't be focused on unfinished business. Her eyes slowed me down and softened me. This was our truest form of communication. Today, there was no more winter whip or frost in the air, only a subtle wind. Coats were out, and sweaters, hoodies, and long-sleeved t-shirts were in. It was March 21st, the first day of spring. I could see that she also had used her time well. She seemed real relaxed. Her skin and hair glistened. She was wearing a cantaloupe-colored jumper. It was a loose fit, not hugging or riding the curves of her shapely petite body. It looked fashionable, but was too short. She had her legs covered with tights colored several psychedelic shades of tangerine, a style only an artist type would find and choose to wear. She had her little feet tucked into a creamsicle-colored pair of pumas, a color I'd never seen before, foreign kicks. Her Louis Vuitton knapsack was riding on her back. The burnt orange leather straps, brand new, hadn't darkened yet. Her pretty neck was out, no jewels on her hands, and she had only the slightest tip of each of her fingernails painted in a sparkling orange polish with the rest of the nails left natural. Her hair was worn in a stylish side slip knot. As she watched me finish checking out every detail, she smiled. Then we were both smiling and standing still among the busy New York travelers. She slid her hand into her one odd-shaped front dress pocket and pulled out her used-up, worn Japanese map of the New York subway system. She pointed out, using the tip of her nail, the location she wanted us to travel to today. Her finger landed on the stop for Brooklyn's Prospect Park. My smile faded away and my mood changed, which she noticed immediately. She slung her knapsack to the front and rifled through it, pulling out another folded paper and handing it to me. It was a flyer for the Cherry Blossom Festival, a Japanese cultural celebration of the arrival of the first day of spring. The paper boasted Japanese foods, Japanese drummers, and a Japanese kabuki theater group in the Brooklyn Park. I took her map from her and pointed out a different location, Central Park, located on 59th and Broadway in Manhattan, a park that, from what I knew, every female couldn't help but love. 
Taking over, I grabbed her hand and pulled her along. She came easily. On the train, I sat her by the window on the inside of me. She placed her little foot right side my foot, which looked so much larger than hers in comparison. My mind drifted from the light and simple, fresh, citrus-clean scent of Akimi's skin to that cold night in the Brooklyn bush at Prospect Park. Clearly, I recalled the image of a bullet rearranging the slow, confident, yet crooked swagger of Gold's Tar Tafari. The blast brought his bent style to attention before he folded and dropped down. It was my last memory of what was a gigantic and wondrous park, miles and miles of natural beauty and public peace and privacy that sometimes made it okay to live in Brooklyn. Now there were real reasons why I stayed away from the place. I had read in a magazine once, while chilling in the Open Mind bookstore, that the police expect and wait for a shooter to return to the scene of a takedown. The author of the article said that the police experts guarantee that guilt will bring every criminal back to the scene of his crime. The writer told a story of a case where a woman was strangled to death inside her suburban home. After the murder, the police on the case would drive through her residential area daily, just knowing that the guilty person would fit the formula and return to the scene. One day, on a random drive down the victim's block, a young kid came through, zigzagging and popping wheelies on his bicycle. The officer driving the police cruiser waved him over. Casually, the kid rode over, smiling and innocent. While he chatted with the cop, he rested his left hand on the roof of the cruiser. How come you're not wearing a bicycle helmet? The officer asked him. Because I'm good on my bike. Didn't you see me? Now the kid extended his arms, balancing himself on his bike, his feet on the pedals, yet standing still. He smiled with great confidence. I can even do a somersault on this thing. Watch. The kid rode off and started showing off his miraculous bike tricks. The cop gave him the thumbs up and his partner even applauded. Next, they drove straight off to the lab and had the roof of their cruiser where the kid had inadvertently placed his hand dusted for fingerprints. According to the cops, the lab and the magazine article, the kid was the killer. The jury convicted him and the judge sentenced him to enough years so that no one would recognize him upon his release. He was a popular junior high school student. The victim was his teacher who chose to embarrass and expose him in front of his classmates instead of privately encouraging him to do better. Her constant demands for him to conform and comply with her irritated his gangster. He would have gotten away with it. One stupid error, placing one hand on the roof of the police car got him caught. I learned from reading the details of that article to never return to a scene of a takedown. And I didn't and wouldn't. It was easy for me though. I didn't feel no guilt. There was no crime scene and Gold's Todd Defari was no victim. I realized from living on my Brooklyn block that boys and even men in America expected and allowed strangers and motherfuckers to threaten and fuck with and play with their mothers, sisters, and women. They allowed other men to make false promises, to impregnate them, to make them cry, and sometimes to even kick, slap, and beat them. Back where I come from, we don't. Akimi was staring into my face, almost nose to nose, eyes to eyes, and lips to lips. She snapped her fingers to break me out of my spell. Softly, she said, Hey. I came back from the hot spot where my anger is stored and let her capture my attention once again. She wasn't the only one who showed up for our date with a plan. I had places to take her, things to show her, all mapped out in my mind. A little while later, her orange fingernail tips were pressed against the glass walls on the 102nd floor 
of the Empire State Building. Her eyes were looking down on the whole of New York City. Her face was filled with amazement. We were 1,500 feet in the air. Still, she stood on her tiptoes. When finally her eyes had surveyed enough, she turned back toward me and flashed a natural smile across her face. Kneeling down, she unbuckled her knapsack. I thought maybe she would pull out a camera like most of us who weren't born here would. Instead, she stood up, holding a pencil and an unlined index card. Her pencil point was already gliding and sketching out something. Everyone else up here had cameras. Small ones, Kodak disposables, expensive Nikons, various sized lenses, even zoom lenses. Akimi didn't seem to care for photography, I thought. She seemed to prefer capturing the details of what she felt and saw with her handmade, hand-drawn, or hand-painted pictures. I was impressed now that I saw her creating, with a pencil, her own styled postcards. Giving her space and time, I stepped back pulling my book out of my jacket pocket and picking up reading where I left off last. Instinctively, I leaped up when I noticed a man aiming his lens at Akimi's face. By the time he pressed and clicked, he had nothing but a photo of my palm print. Jesus Christ, you messed up my shot, he grimaced. Keep it moving, I warned him quietly. She's my girl, no photos. I blocked his view while using my peripheral to keep track of the Empire State Security Guard fidgeting on my left side. Let me ask her, the tall white guy photographer in the ball buster dirty jeans pushed. Before anything else could be said or done, Hakimi screamed out, E! No! She gave him a flash of that spicy anger she gave me the other week outside of Joe's store. Her shriek brought security over. All of the tourists stared our way. Immediately, Akimi extended her arm and pointed out the white guy. The security guard told the photographer. The young lady said no. Leave her alone. Pissed, the photographer repositioned himself to click photos of something that couldn't holler back. On the elevator ride down, she stood behind me in the corner. I was the wall between her and the people packed and pressed into one another in the limited space. On the ground floor, we both stepped into the same triangle of the revolving door. Outside, we could breathe more easily. Suddenly, the photographer reappeared. Listen, friend, he said, extending his hand, his business card dangling from his fingers. You got me wrong. I'm willing to pay you for her photos. She's a beautiful girl, and I work for... I grabbed Akimi, and we disappeared into the crowded New York City streets. I wondered to myself why no man in this country understood how to pull himself back when it came to women. I was sure now that many men would be murdered easily because of this problem that they saw as nothing. An image of me poking one of the blades of my kunai into that photographer's temple flashed before me. I was glad that in this instant, I had the opportunity to walk away. Music surrounded Central Park. I could hear some African drumming coming from inside, the beats grabbing my attention and arousing my soul. With a closer listen, it sounded like the rhythms of someone lost Every tap on the skins sounded like a question. I could tell that the drummer was an amateur, but still, every drum beat is telling, saying, or showing something. Outside the park, there were sounds battling one another. Radios, speakers, amplifiers, break dancers, rollerbladers, roller skaters, musical gymnasts, silver-skinned human robots, people, monkeys, birds, you name it. We willingly walked in and up the winding paths that seemed to turn everyone inside the park into characters and scenery from a colorful and elaborate children's pop-up storybook, the kind I purchased from Naja a couple of years ago. Purchased for Naja a couple of years ago. 
stinking horses trotted by dragging Cinderella carts loaded down with ripped off tourists. The animals looked exhausted, unable to see to their left or their right. They only expressed themselves by dropping huge, funky fucking piles of shit everywhere they went. But the newly leafed and budded crabapple trees, maple and elm trees, and even cherry blossoms, along with the makeshift waterfalls and fountains, made it into a paradise. Watching Akimi, I could tell that this park had the magic that cast a spell on females. Seeing a set of swings, she took off running and jumped right on. Her legs lifted her higher and higher. Her eyes were shut. Her mouth dropped open and her head tipped back. She leaned backward and was soaring. Like an acrobat, she suddenly stood up on the silver swing seat, pumping her legs and flying higher. In midair, she jumped off and landed right on me. I seen she liked to leave dangerously. What if in a split second I had moved? Luckily, I didn't. She wrapped her legs around me around my waist and laid her breast pressed against my chest. Now her head lay on my shoulders. Her slipknot came loose and her hair brushed against my neck and fell on my back. I carried her up the hill and down again, feeling and knowing only one thing. I had fucked around and fell in love. By the Central Park Lobe Boathouse, I paid for a rowboat ride. Rowing on the 15 feet of man-made lake water, I knew this was not the yacht named Salama or Afaluka. It wasn't the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. In fact, it was not a river or a sea and definitely not the Nile, but I was rowing and she was lying on her side, her shoes kicked off, her legs hanging off the side of the boat, each toe a different shade of orange in her strange and colorful toe tights. She was listening to jazz music on an old five-inch transistor radio she pulled out of her magician knapsack of endless Akimi stuff. As her music played softly, I noticed that the peculiarly shaped lake was surrounded by the most beautiful willow trees. I rode us past the other seven or eight boats to a secluded spot, sheltered by the willows and near a muddy incline. When she felt the boat stop, she sat up clicked off the radio, went back into her magic bag, and pulled out what it took me a few seconds to figure out was a mini cassette tape recorder. She stepped over and sat facing me as the boat rocked a little. She pressed record, then said softly, please. I sat idle for about 10 seconds before I said anything. I wasn't no poet. My mind started pushing together a rhyme. I wasn't no rapper either. I leaned in to be close enough to her little device and slowly I said, Akimi is a girl I met in New York City. She's from Japan and she looks real pretty. But more than that, she's talented and smart. In just a couple months, she stole my heart. But Akimi remains a mystery to me. She hides me from her family but the feeling she has for me she can't hide every time I see her it's all in her eyes <laughs> I smiled surprised at myself when she realized I wouldn't continue she clicked her recorder off in the park there were bridges with tunnels and caves beneath them dark ones filled with nature and small creatures we walked through one of the tunnels together because of the immediate switch from sunlight to darkness, all I could see in there was a silhouette of Akimi. She stopped walking midway. We were alone for a moment. Still, we could both see some more walkers approaching less than one minute away. I could feel her hand reach up to the opening of my shirt. Her fingers began sliding across my collarbone. She moved them slowly across the width of it before she withdrew them. Then I felt both of her hands in mine. I didn't return her touches, which felt so good to me. I felt like if I started touching her, I wouldn't and couldn't stop. I was brought up not to be intimate in public, yet I felt mad intimate within myself. Another couple entered the tunnel. 
Hakimi stepped away from me. I heard her click on her recorder. I never saw anyone do it before, but I guessed she was recording the sounds of nature. I could hear the frogs and crickets myself. Southern grandfather, my father's father, trained me to sit still for hours and listen to the sounds of the wilderness. Me and him weren't recording with any device except for our ears. He taught me to listen so carefully that I could hear the buzz of a mosquito, the ruffling of grass, and even the winding of a serpent. Seated up high in the park on a rock, me and Akimi played a crazy game of charades together. How else could we do it? We couldn't talk. She would draw a quick, simple picture of what she liked. Then she handed me a card to draw what I liked. We communicated through these pictures. Only thing was, she was a great artist. I was not. When I drew two fists on the paper to let her know I am a fighter, she looked unsure. I stood up and struck a stance and did some quick moves just for her. She clapped and smiled, delighted. I drew a basketball to let her know I like to hoop. I drew a book, then pulled my real book out and handed it to her to let her know I like to read. Last, I drew my version of a picture of her and flung it at her. <laughs> she grabbed for it. Her face revealed that I was the worst artist of all time. She didn't get it. I pointed to her and said, I like you. She smiled and laughed. She held my drawing beside her face to show me how ridiculously off it was. Afterwards, she tried to slide my ugly drawing into her knapsack, but I took it away from her and put it in my back pocket. I saw that she thought everything belonged to her. On her turn, she tried to show me about herself. She pulled out her little radio and turned it on. Suddenly, she began to dance while still sitting. You like music, I guessed. What else could she be telling me? Hi, she answered. She started moving around again. You like to dance, I called out like I was competing on a game show. Hi, she laughed. Then she jumped up and started moving her arms in a controlled motion, her fingers closed and cupped. You're a swimmer, I said. She didn't answer. Maybe I said it in a way she couldn't get. Swim, I said, using just the one word and gesturing. Hi, she smiled. Then she dropped back down, took off her backpack, and handed it to me. Next thing I knew, she was positioning her body like a yoga guru. She struck a pose and shouted in her softest voice, Hanya Manzana. It looked wicked. Her legs were in a full split, and her arms were extended like a graceful ballerina. One hand pointed to the sky. She didn't seem to care one bit that she was wearing a dress. In an instant, she flowed out of this amazing position right into another one. Firefly, she said. Both of her hands were on the rock, holding her body up in the air and her toes pointed out. Her dress crept up her thighs. She flowed out of that pose and in her last exhibition, she twisted herself up and said softly, Scorpion, in her sensual accent. I looked at her. She was even more strange to me now and even more beautiful. She lay down, relaxing on the rock and facing the sky, plucking small leaves and sticks off her dress. I faced east and made my prayer, first cleaning my face and hands and nose and feet as is required using bottled water. Some Ghanaians recruited me into a game of soccer on the field. I wasn't gonna play. I was into something else right then. Akimi tried to encourage me by playing and pushing my me with her body then her hands to go ahead so I agreed she watched intensely from the sidelines along with some females who were there with the Ghanaians I caught her eyes moving across the field with me I felt good that she wasn't one of these girls with wandering eyes this was actually the first game of soccer I had played since arriving in America it took a lot more coordination than basketball after I warmed up I played a good game. My eyes and my feet are quick anyway. Watching the West Africans move with such passion and enthusiasm, I got into it. It was easy to look into one or two of their faces and to imagine I was seeing my father and his friends. More than that, it was relaxing to burn off the energy that had me exploding before I ran into them. Coming off the field after the game, I didn't see Akimi. 
I gave the players a pound and a couple of them my Uma Designs business cards. I walked around slowly. I stopped, figuring she wouldn't have wandered off this far. Then I heard her laugh. I followed the direction of her voice and saw her enjoying watching me look for her as she sat comfortably in a tree. Why bother trying to figure out how she got up there and why? I stood below her and she came leaping down onto my arms. She placed her nose against my neck, sniffing the scent of my sweat. We both used our hands to brush each other off. I pulled a leaf and a couple of bits of bark off her. I even took some particles off her pretty stockings. So nicely dressed when we first started out, we were both looking like we had a mad and crazy good time. Seated in a Middle Eastern restaurant called Medina Star on the east side of 57th Street in Manhattan, I was sure I was introducing Akimi to some of the North African foods that I enjoy, which she had probably never tried. I ordered falafel with tahini sauce, hummus, and baba ganache. I ordered those purple kalamata olives, kalamata olives that I enjoy with cayenne spiced onions and shata. I also ordered a tray of chicken kebabs and warm pita bread, all of it for us to share. When she returned from the ladies' room all fresh and clean, her eyes danced at the spread on our table. She began trying each dish, her reaction showing up on her face each time. I picked her mini recorder up from her side of the table. She was just sucking one of her fingers when I clicked it and said, Speak Korean. She must have had hot sauce on her tongue because her eyes immediately filled with water. Either that, or maybe she thought of her Korean mother. I knew this reaction was a possibility, but I wanted her to know that I knew something about her family, that she was not a stranger or just a pretty face to me. She spoke Korean softly into the mic. The flow of that language was completely different than her Japanese sounded in my ear. The Korean language sounded like a whining. Every other word dragged out. The syllables moaned instead of spoken. The way she spoke it was erotic and it was nice too. Speak Chinese, I said next. Her watery eyes dried up. I saw she was delighted by games. She spoke some Chinese to me, which sounded nothing like her Japanese or Korean. It was a swiftly spoken language with a nasal twang. Last, I asked her to speak Thai, and she did, easily. Secretly, I was overwhelmed by her. In the night, she wanted to shop. She was the first person ever to take me into Bergdorf Goodman which had been the most expensive store in the whole wide world, which had to be the most expensive store in the whole wide world. I watched her drown herself in perfumes, checking with me on what scents I liked. She looked at thousand dollar dresses, shoes that cost several thousand dollars and handbags so expensive they were locked in a vault. From Bergdorf's, she ended up only purchasing a couple of things, a pair of Prada kicks and seven pairs of stockings beautiful and fancy ones. By now I could see that colorful stockings and textured tights were really her thing. Afterward, she wanted to show me something else. We walked about 12 blocks before we arrived at a brick building on a side street. She pushed through the glass door and led me up six flights of narrow stairs to the third floor. Up there were walls and walls and shelves of books volumes of graphic novels, comics, and magazines. The catch was, everything was written in Japanese. I figured she wanted me to know that she liked books too, and what kind. The place was kind of slick, I thought. I saw that the Asians were also good at recreating their Asian world right inside New York City. I thought it was interesting how foreigners from the same land still managed to find each other in a sea of diverse people nine million deep. She spoke nicely to the store staff, all Asians, but she remained focused on me. She never tried to place any dis distance between me and her while she was around her own kind or other youth. Yet in front of her aunt and uncle, her vibe wasn't the same. I bought one Japanese novel as a token. 
She bought three. We ended up on a side street on 30th. These were private Japanese boutiques. The store owner or security guard had to buzz each customer in after a careful inspection. Nobody had to tell me what one shop owner was thinking when she saw me standing there behind Akimi. She actually came to the door and spoke some Japanese to which Akimi answered only hi. I figured the woman asked, is this black guy with you or should I call the police? After a while, I figured out that Akimi shopped there because they had the styles that fit Asian girls. Their body type was different from a lot of other women. These shops catered to them and also sold both the European and Asian high fashions in petite sizes. Akimi took forever and then dropped a couple of grand on some items she selected in the 30th Street shops. Despite the cost, all of her purchases fit into two decorative shopping bags which she unfolded from her magical knapsack. On 34th Street, a huge crowd had gathered on either side of the long blocks. I was surprised. There were hundreds or maybe even a thousand people standing there side by side and back to back. When I looked up at the glowing numbers on the neon clock that sat in a billboard in the sky, I was surprised at just how late it was. Even Macy's department store had already closed. Police officers lined each side of the street, keeping the crowd behind the barricades and keeping the streets clear. Akimi walked behind me with one hand on my waist. When I found our way through to the front of the crowd, I thought I must have gone crazy because I saw 50 huge, majestic elephants marching down the New York City streets, single file in a straight line. Akimi standing behind me could not see. I took her two shopping bags and secured them. I lifted her onto my shoulders, her legs dangling down on my chest. It's the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. They're bringing the elephants into Madison Square Garden. It's circus season, one parent explained to her teenage kids. It's the midnight march of the elephants. They do this every year, another person said. Akimi wouldn't move until the last elephant, clown, monkey, horse, and pony trotted off the streets. She was so fascinated, I didn't move her or remind her that now it was the next day, 12.30 a.m. When our cab arrived at Jackson Heights, Queens, she wanted to walk off on her own toward her house. I paid the cabbie and went with her, not trying to hear no sayonara. I wouldn't leave her to go alone at this late hour. I walked with her right up to her front door. Their porch light was high intensity, high wattage, more like a searchlight, and was the only light on the very darkened street. Her auntie pulled the door open slightly as though she had been seated right there on the other side of the door, just waiting. I said goodnight to them both and made my way home. For me, it was cool walking the late night, early morning streets of Queens, New York. I could feel the love moving and spreading through my chest like an invasion. It was a new feeling, different from my love for my family. It was a good feeling, too. On the train, I attempted to assure myself of a couple of things. Akimi was on break from school, so it was all right for her to be out late with me tonight. But I knew that wasn't true. It wasn't all right in my beliefs and traditions. None of it was supposed to be happening. But what was up with her uncle anyway? I had introduced myself properly to him. I handed over the modest gifts from my family to his. I told him where I worked and where I came from. I was up front with him, but he was silent. If he had anything to say or any rules to set or any demands to make, the ball was in his court. I could respect any man who made himself clear about his family. At our apartment, I got some responses from Akimi's family. It came on my voicemail while I was listening to a few business messages at a low volume in my bedroom. The first call came from them 
the night before at nine while we were out shopping. It was Akimi's cousin looking for Akimi. Oddly, her message was spoken as if she wasn't the one who called me and set up the date between me and Akimi in the first place. She was talking like she had no idea what was going on or even if she was calling the right number. She was speaking as if she was unsure if Akimi was even with me. I replayed it twice. I paused it. I decided maybe their uncle leaned on her about Akimi's whereabouts, and she pretended not to know where Akimi was, but still she called around searching. I wasn't sure about my theory, though. Her second voicemail came in at 10.30. This is Akimi's cousin. My mother would like to invite you to our home tomorrow at 1 in the afternoon. She would like to meet you. Akimi knows where we live. If you agree, she will meet you tomorrow at... I would definitely show up. I could tell that now they were becoming more aware and interested in who I am and what I am involved in. I knew that them calling me over to their house was a chance for the adults on Akimi's side to take a closer look. All I knew was that I am a real man who is trying my best to be respectful of them. Later that morning, I woke up hard as steel and remained that way for a while. By 10 a.m., I was freshly showered and dressed and standing outside the door of a Brooklyn wholesale flower shop named Tropics. I had some Uma Designs business to take care of an expensive order of thousands of flowers for the Sudanese wedding. This was the only flower wholesaler in my area that carried flowers imported from African countries as well as flowers from all over the world, including Hawaii, Thailand, Brazil, Argentina, and so on. Besides, they boasted a money-back guarantee on the freshness of their product. But I didn't want my money back. I just needed them to get the job done right the first time. There would be no do-overs, take-backs, or second chances on the wedding. I placed my order precisely as Uma had described it to me. The thousands of fresh flowers would arrive on the morning of the wedding. I had an idea to double-check their business credibility. I put together an exotic flower arrangement and ordered it to be delivered to Akimi's family shop next week. I knew she might like these unusually beautiful and unique types of flowers that I selected for her. Perhaps her aunt and uncle would too. I would also get a chance to see if the flowers were delivered on time, if they were fresh, and the exact arrangement that I had ordered. By 11 a.m., I was in Manhattan at a candy wholesaler named Sweeties. I took my time looking at tons of candies and order sheets for exactly what Uma wanted. I had the manager prepare a sampler pack for me, even though I had already completed my order with them. I figured it was a small perk and a nice gift to walk away with. By 1 p.m., I was all the way on the west side of Lower Manhattan to meet Akimi by the river as agreed, farther west than I had ever walked or traveled in New York City before. Akimi was there, waiting. She held up two tickets in her hand. She was good luck for me, I thought. Once again, I found myself in a boat, a ferry speeding across the Hudson River. Yesterday a lake, today a river. Tomorrow maybe she and I would be in the, in the yacht of my dreams, moving on the deep blue waters of the ocean. My ticket said Edgewater, New Jersey. In script across the bottom of the ticket was the slogan, New Jersey, the Garden State. As we rode side by side, she had her hand on my leg, playing with fire. She wore a blue denim dress with the back out. It was covered only by strips of straps crisscrossing each other while exposing the beauty and curve of her back. She wore a pair of blue leather gladiator sandals that crisscrossed up her pretty, shapely, bare legs, which I was seeing now for the first time. It was too much. She seemed as if she felt cold. The breeze on the river, much stronger with more chill than on the warm spring streets of New York. I took off my jacket and covered her legs. Since I wore a t-shirt beneath it, I I unbuttoned my denim jabot shirt, took it off and put it on her instead. It was way too big for her pretty shoulders, but 
and did enough to satisfy me. She leaned against me, staring off to the other side of the river, whispering, Arigato, but seeming trapped somewhere in her imagination. There was not a large crowd getting off the ferry in Edgewater, a small town really on the edge, edged out between the river and the mountains. I followed her. Soon we were boarding their version of the Brooklyn Dollar van. We jumped in and stood right next to each other for the short ride to an unfamiliar market. The place was named Mitsuwa. It was a huge complex framed by boutiques on one side and a Japanese restaurant called Matsushima that sat farther back on the Hudson River. It had an authentic old Asian architecture, a design I had seen once in a film. Inside the market, the aroma of fresh baked breads and pastries filled the air. Strangely, there were several separate businesses within the supermarket, open stall bakeries, tea shops, spaghetti stands, and cafes. There was a huge seating area, high ceilings and expensive benches and stools and chairs, not in straight rows but arranged like a jigsaw puzzle for small or big families and groups of customers to enjoy. The grocery shopping section was well stocked and immaculate. Akimi grabbed a cart and began shopping. She looked at me before she pushed off, saying only one word, cook. As we maneuvered through the vegetables and fruits, many of which I had never known existed, she pointed them out and recited their Japanese names. When I saw items that I recognized, I told her the English translation for those two. With two sacks of groceries, we walked out the side door, a different door than the one we entered. We stood in front of one of the boutiques and the Mitsuwa minibus arrived. We boarded a bus full of Asians, each one shorter and smaller than myself. The driver sped up a winding road named River Road. I kept my eyes on the street signs because I always need to know where I'm at, how I traveled in, and how to travel the fuck out. Soon we were riding over the overpass to the George Washington Bridge. We entered a town called Fort Lee and climbed off. There were taxis there. We caught one. Akimi gave the street number and name. Nothing more, nothing less. We traveled through expensive apartment complexes with terraces and beautiful wooded areas and flowered paths. Soon we were weaving in and out of weirdly shaped and placed streets and alcoves, past mansions separated by acres, fences, tall trimmed and manicured bushes, and swimming pools. The driver asked for 9.50. I paid him and asked, what town is this? He looked at me through his rear view first then turned his head all the way around. Inglewood Cliffs, he said dryly. We were at a dead end marked with two street signs. One said Honeysuckle Courtyard. The other sign read, No Exit. It was a cul-de-sac, lined with a semicircle of cherry blossom trees. Akimi walked up a pathway to one mansion whose front lawn was a rock garden instead of grass. Each rock was carefully placed in a pattern. There were a few circular slabs of cement that served as a hopscotch path leading up to a bench oddly placed underneath their one beautiful purple-leafed plum tree. Zooming out of their long driveway backward was an olive green Range Rover. Hakimi stopped walking and watched it pull off and away. She looked at me as if she wanted to say something that she couldn't express. The bell chimed and it seemed that the sound was being amplified throughout their house and property. Soon, her cousin opened the heavy and obviously expensive designer door. Rapidly, she began speaking in their language to Akimi. Then she turned to me. Come on in. Welcome to my home, she said happily. Where are your parents? I asked her instinctively while removing my kicks, which I knew was customary. Oh yeah, well my mother is the one who really wanted to meet you, but she just rushed off to the hospital, the cousin said, placing my kicks onto a shoe rack. I'm sorry, is she very sick? I asked. The cousin laughed. No, silly. She's a surgeon, and her beeper went off. 
She hated to leave. She wanted to be here, but she had to go. And your father? I asked. Where I come from, when you enter a home, you are supposed to be greeted by the man of the house. If not, you seek him out and offer him greetings when you locate him. You always speak to the father first and then the sons because in every home there are rulers and rules and respect that must be offered. Back home when the limits get crossed, the fists start swinging, the weapons get drawn and heads get chopped. My father is at work. He won't be home until tonight around seven, she said. Akimi exhaled, took the two Mitsuba bags from my hands and strolled off somewhere. The cousin said, let me show you around and introduce you to my brothers and their friends. The house was extremely clean and not overcrowded with ugly furniture. There was mostly woodwork and steel, benches instead of chairs, wide corridors and high ceilings, good air circulating, open spaces and tall walls of windows, marble floors and granite counters, beds in the bedrooms lower to the floor. There was a wide selection of artwork on the walls. There were several big rooms, nicely designed. I could tell her cousin wanted me to be impressed. I was, but I had owned and lived in much more back home, better and higher quality, sitting on much more land. I knew there was a big difference between a home and an estate. Besides, I was here because Akimi was here, and this was her family, and that was it. It could have been a tiny cabin. If Akimi was going to be there... I would have showed up there too. So far, there was no trace of her brothers. When finally we arrived out back, I could see that this was where the real living took place. There was a greenhouse filled with plants, a small tree and flowers, and one old lady wearing a bizarre bamboo hat. She's my grandmother. The one who I told you doesn't speak any English was how Akimi's cousin decided to describe her. But... We didn't go inside the greenhouse to meet her grandmother properly. Of course, their basketball court caught my eye. And that's where her brothers were, off to the side getting a game on when we walked up. She introduced us. Hiro and Kanosan, this is Akimi's friend Midnight. Akimi says to treat him like a king, she told them, laughed a little and then left. Both brothers looked me over, gave me a pound, and introduced me to their two friends, two white boys. One was named Rob the other Dave. Both of them gave me friendly greetings. I don't know why, but as soon as I stepped up, they all forgot about the game they were playing and handed me the ball. I took a few shots, all net. They kept passing the ball back to me. We talked about the New York Knicks and the New Jersey Nets. The guy Dave said his father got season passes to the Knicks and they went to the games at the Garden all the time. Hiro asked me, tell us how did you meet my cousin Akimi? I work in Chinatown. That's really cool, Kano said, and Hiro agreed. Just as things were flowing easy, the kid Rob, who I figured was about 17 years young or so, said some slick shit to me. So you're dating Akimi. You're lucky, man. I've been trying to talk to her ever since I first met her a few months back. I ended up with nothing. He was smiling and holding his arms stretched apart as though he couldn't understand his failure to attract her. You want to run one? I asked him. Who, me? He said, just like a coward. Yeah, you and me, one-on-one. -on -one. I threw the ball at him. Check, I said. The other three backed off the court. I humiliated him. I never let him shoot the ball. I smacked down all of his shots as soon as he tried to put them up. I stripped him, made him run around chasing a ball he could not see or catch. I knocked him over, then struck my hand out to help him up. At 18 points to zero, he got tired of the beating and begged enough. I gave him a pound and said with a smile, Good game, man. Eh? His friends tried to hold it back, but they ended up laughing at him and looking at me with amazement. It was not like I felt good about it. It was easy for me to dominate them on the court, even without my kicks on. Just then I noticed Akimi watching me through a window. Then I couldn't see her anymore. I thought to myself, it's bullshit for people who can't play the game and don't love the game to have season tickets. 
Meanwhile, in our hoods, the game is pumping through our veins and living in our hearts, yet most will never get to go to the garden, much less sit in the seats right on the floor. Let's get some waters, Kano said. We all followed him to his kitchen. He grabbed the waters from a stainless steel refrigerator that was filled with bottled waters. He tossed them across the room to each of us. I finished off mine and asked for the bathroom. Hero pointed the way, which I remembered anyway from the sisters' tour. I washed my hands and face in a sink shaped like a large dish. It was made of marble. I stood still a moment, thinking. When I returned to the kitchen, Akimi and her cousin were standing there. For some reason, the dude Rob was in the kitchen, too, even though Hiro, Kano, and Dave had moved on. He said to me, You was gone a long time, and smiled slyly. Rob was one of those dudes who could never survive in Brooklyn, the type who never learns how to play his position and shut the fuck up until he's bleeding from his mouth. He was their guest, yet he carried himself like he was the man of their house, having too many words to say about every small or large situation. Akimi pulled me out of where my energy was moving. I followed her to the other side of the backyard up some stone steps and into a private area under a trellis. There were vines and plants hanging down from overhead and on three sides, plants made walls where there really were none. Only one side remained open and was clear to see in and out. It was breezy. Akimi had the small barbecue going. She had sliced and placed chunks of salmon on sticks with onions and green peppers with seasonings. She was turning the sticks now, but I could tell they were cooked and ready. The outdoor table was arranged with love. There were miniature dishes of sauces and spices carefully placed. There were green porcelain rectangular plates of varying sizes. A table offering salads and vegetables and streaming brown rice in a rice cooker. There were two black metal kettles, one filled with soup, the other with tea. After I looked at everything, I looked at her. She was waiting for my reaction. I smiled and then sat. She smiled, relaxed, and served. The spoons and even her maroon-glazed wooden chopsticks were beautiful. It was a table with nothing ordinary to offer. I could tell she wasn't sure what I would eat, so she had prepared a lot of simple but thoughtful choices. I liked it all. Her fingers wrapped around her chopsticks. Her nails today were clean with only a coat of transparent gloss. She stared at me while she chewed. Her stupid transistor radio was playing piano tunes. Her taste in music was obviously diverse, same as my father's. The meal she served didn't weigh me down. It was light and satisfying. Afterward, I pulled out my candies and spread about nine of them across her table and pointed her for to choose one. I wanted to know what kind of flavors she liked. She picked them up one by one and looked each of them over, but didn't select. I opened the Hershey's Kiss and held it to her mouth. She bit the tip. Then she went through each of the eight pieces of candy and licked each one, sucking her own tongue afterward to bring down the flavor. I guessed she was looking for the right taste, but at the same time, she was driving my blood up. She licked the caramel twice, but settled on the honey. She took it into her mouth and kept it. She took my hand. She said one word, go. I think she meant come. I picked up the caramel candy that she had licked. Caramel had always been my first choice. I followed her. We stepped around the trellis. She disappeared into a path behind it and into the woods behind her cousin's house. We walked for about six and a half minutes before I saw an easel and a chair off to my left. I realized she must come out here sometimes to paint. I could see why. There was nothing out there but the beauty and sounds of nature. No humans except for us. Surprisingly, she turned to the right, walking away from the easel. She stopped in front of an old oak tree with deep roots, a huge wide trunk, and branches that stretched to the sky forever. The new spring leaves were every shade of green. She leaned up against the tree. She locked her eyes onto mine. She started speaking Japanese to me. 
She placed her palms underneath my t-shirt. When her skin touched my skin, my whole body heated up. I stepped into her. I put my hands on her shoulders and moved them down her bare arms. She caught goosebumps and began breathing intensely. I locked my fingers into hers. She brought both our hands up to her breasts. She unraveled her fingers from mine, then dropped her hands to her sides. My hands were still there on her breasts, the size of mangoes. I began to caress and gently squeeze her titties. Her nipples raised up through the denim. She breathed even louder. I leaned in and kissed her, still touching her titties. It was lips to lips at first. Little by little, her mouth opened. She licked my lip. My tongue found her tongue. She began sucking my tongue like she wanted to have all of the caramel for herself, like she wanted to consume me inside of her mouth. It felt so good. I picked her up to hold her closer to my body, to feel her eye to eye. I held her in my arms, her butt seated in my hands, her back up against the tree, her bare legs wrapped around my waist. She rubbed my head, even my scalp was on fire. She touched my face, my chin, my neck. I began sucking her neck. She started moaning softly. Soon she was back to suck on me too. Her body gave in to the feeling. The taut grip of her legs loosened. Soon enough, we were both on the grassy ground, her legs slightly open in her short blue denim dress. Her chest heaved up and down like she just completed a strenuous marathon. She sat up, pulled her body to the tree, and leaned up against it. I sat up beside her. We tried to slow it down, but she took my hand back into her hand. She was massaging my fingers. I ran my other hand up the inside of her thigh. I had never felt anything so soft and so good. Her cheeks were flushed and her eyes were so excited, wide and beautiful. Her left leg was shaking some. I couldn't believe the power of my touch, but her breathing and moaning made it true. Under her dress, I could feel her panties. They were the only thing that separated me from her bush, which I could feel raised up through the very thin material. I didn't try to pull them off. I just touched the outside, rolled the counter up, rolled the contour of her body with my fingers, gently exploring. Her moistness soaked through almost immediately. She whispered only one English word, please. Her legs dropped open now completely. I imagined like a beginner's yoga position. Both my hands were raising up her thighs and holding her hips. Soon I was holding her small bare waist in my hands. She laid back down slowly, but before I could slip her panties down, we both heard her cousin's voices screaming out her name. Her cousin's voice interrupted something so sweet and powerful and yanked me out of the momentum of something so new and incredible. Reluctantly, I stood up and held out my hand so that she could grab onto me and hurry up and get up too. Akimi tried to pull me closer onto her. She didn't want me to stop. I definitely didn't want to stop either, but her cousin's voice was drawing closer. Her cousin shouted out some words in Japanese. Akimi answered back in Japanese. She turned around and said, go. I knew she meant come. I jogged behind her the seven minutes back to her house. In the cool corridor of the house, her cousin was looking both of us over. The light was dim, but even I noticed the purple passion mark I left on Akimi's neck. I wanted everybody and everything to disappear for a while. Then I would pursue my passions and put my marks all over Akimi's body. Instead, I took a deep breath and looked away from my attraction. Her and Akimi kept talking back and forth. The telephone rang. Her cousin looked at her and without words, her eyes instructed Akimi to answer the phone. Akimi picked up the telephone. Her voice switched into respect mode. I could tell she was speaking to an elder. 
Her cousin was standing by me. It's our uncle calling, she said. This is his second call, she added. Is something wrong? I asked, completely out of guilt. A leaf from the woods fell off Akimi's dress and came zigzagging down onto the marble floor. No, it's just that our uncle is responsible for Akimi. He is both of our father's youngest brother. Looking very disappointed, Akimi hung up the phone and began speaking to her cousin. Her cousin interpreted for me. Our uncle says that Akimi cannot have a guest in our house if neither my mother or father are at home, the cousin announced. I tried to explain to my uncle that mom was supposed to be here and that she should return soon enough, but our uncle said that this is no good because when he called the first time, Hiro could not even find you and Akimi. It's no problem. I'll get ready to leave, I said. Ask Akimi for my jacket, I told her cousin. She translated. Akimi says, come and get it, her cousin informed me. As Akimi walked down the corridor, then up three indoor stairs, turning into a bedroom, I followed her easily, but her cousin also followed me. In the bedroom, she picked my jacket up from the bed and handed it to me. The look in her eyes was too powerful, but I could also feel her cousin's eyes burning a hole in my back. To hurry up and leave, I took the jacket and turned to go. Akimi spoke to her cousin. Her cousin said to me, Akimi said she's coming with you. Looking at her cousin instead of her, I answered, Tell Akimi I said to stay here. I don't want to cause her any more trouble with your uncle. You tell her. She's a rebel. She won't listen, her cousin said, then translated. Akimi checked my eyes to see if I refused her coming. I shook my head no to show her she could not come with me. She pouted and folded her arms over her chest. Her cousin said, that's better anyway. Akimi's staying over here in Jersey for the next week instead of being at home alone in Queens. Uncle said, isn't she working at the store? My older brother is home from college for the week. He's working at Uncle's store. Akimi will be right here with me. Until, I asked, until her vacation ends, one week. She'll return to Queens on next Sunday. Akimi was leaning against the wall, looking mad and even more pretty. Before I put my sneakers back on, I asked about Hiro and Kano. They're in the basement, her cousin said. She led me to the basement door. All right, Hiro, Kano, I'm about to bounce. Good meeting you two, I said. Later, man, they both said. Then Rob and Dave yelled up, later, dude. They would have come upstairs to say bye, but they're playing video games. You know how it is, her cousin said. I walked to their front door, pulled my sneakers off the rack, and put them on. Jamata Akimi, I said. It meant, I'll see you next time. It was a long walk to the nearest bus stop. I kept my pace swift. Didn't want to inspire any policemen, although I had not seen any so far. The sun was warm and bright. There was nothing but peace and solitude. The trees swayed and the birds were busy. I could see why they called this the Garden State. After a trek, there were several buses headed right over the George Washington Bridge. It was the quickest way for me to get back into the city. I decided to save the ferry boat rides for me and her. I jumped on the bus instead. Seated in the back window seat, I pressed my head against the glass. As the bus pulled off, I could see Akimi pedaling fast on a boy bike she must have borrowed from her boy cousins. She was wearing a sweater, a t-shirt and capris and kicks now. Her hair was in a wild, long ponytail. She was covered with a light sheen of perspiration and looking all around for me. Allah is good, I thought. Akimi could not see me and it was too late for me to get off the moving bus. I knew if I were to encounter her again today, there would be no stopping the moments of our feelings, the momentum of our feelings. The scent of her was still on my fingers. I had no desire to remove it. It made me feel as if my hand was still moving up the inside of her soft as butter thigh. The scent enticed me almost as much as she did. I couldn't think straight, at least not as straight as I usually could. This day had been a series of firsts. 
first time to New Jersey, first time being inside of Akimi's family's home, first time sliding my tongue into a mouth, first time running my hands over a female's breasts and thighs and touching her panties, first time I felt like something felt so good that I couldn't stop myself. I knew I had to sort it all out. But for now, I did something I never do while traveling or standing still in the streets of Brooklyn. I closed my eyes.